Well, Father, our hearts long for our lives to be one sweet, beautiful, humble, loving, alleluia to you. It's what we feel melted into by a song like that. We just want to be an alleluia, a praise to the Lord in the earth, a praise to the Lord in our families, a praise to the Lord at school and at work. Lord, would you turn our yearning hearts in praise into lives of praise? Would you extend the sweetness of these moments in praise out into a a week of praise? Would you make Christ beautiful in and through our lives all week long as he appears beautiful to us in these hours of worship? Stretch this hour over the whole of our lives until all the world sees and believes. And now, Lord, open your word to us, I pray. Make this a very precious and special day in the life of your people for the sake of your name. Through Christ, I pray. Amen. The term education for exaltation was not chosen two years ago because it sounded nice It describes a vision behind the new building that's coming, and it describes the structure of Psalm 100, and we'll go there in just a minute. We chose it because it describes the way God means to be glorified in the world. He means to be known with the head, that's education, and he means to be sung From the heart. That's exaltation. So education for exaltation. And if the singing, the exaltation, isn't based on the knowing or thinking, the education, then it is hollow and empty and insignificant. And God gets no glory from emotions that are not rooted in truth about him. If music creates the emotions, God gets no glory from that. If relationships among men create the emotion, God gets no glory from that. Only if God is in the equation does God get glory from the affections that well up in our hearts, the exaltation of our lives. Education for exaltation means we must know God truly and then respond with affections duly. There must be an appropriateness to the affections in their intensity in accord with the truth. Education for exaltation means that we must see God clearly and savor God dearly. It means that we must think biblical Truths about God and feel biblical emotions for God. And the knowing must be the basis of the affections. The seeing must be the basis of the savoring. And the thinking must be the basis of the feeling. That's why it says education 
for exaltation, knowing for affection, seeing for savoring, thinking for feeling. It's not just a nice sounding slogan. It's reality. It's a description of the way God relates to us. It's a description of his purpose for us in creation. We are designed to know God and enjoy him forever. And the enjoyment is to be rooted in the knowing. What you know about him releases affections for him. And if the affections arise another way besides knowing him, he's not going to get any honor from that. And the reverse is true, too. Exaltation that does not flow from education, affections that don't come from knowing, savoring that don't come from, from seeing, feelings that don't come from thinking are hollow, rootless, noisy gongs, and God isn't honored. So tonight, we're going to wave the banner of education for exaltation because that's what the building is for that is going to replace the old sanctuary. And this morning, we're going to wave it from Psalm 100. So I invite you to open your Bibles to the, the old 100th, as it's called. The structure of this Psalm 100 that you're now, I hope, looking at, explains education for exaltation. Because the text is arranged... Exaltation, education, exaltation, education. So let's get the overview here first, and then we'll take some parts of it. Stanza 1, verses 1 and 2. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. That is what I mean by exaltation. Shouting with joy, serving with gladness, joyful singing. That's what we mean by Exaltation. So there it is, right at the outset of the psalm. Now, stanza two, verse three, is education. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he that made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Know something. Education for exaltation is woven all through this. So verses 1 and 2, exaltation, and verse 3, education. And the way it hit me was, as I was reciting it in my RSV, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing. No! I just stopped right there and felt the connection between singing, no! Singing, no! Gladness, no! If you want to make a joyful noise, you need to know something. If you want to serve the Lord with gladness, you need to know something. If you want to enter his gates with praise, you need to know something. See the connection there between the exaltation stanza and the education stanza? The education stanza starts with the word, know something. Know that the Lord is God. So now we've seen... Exaltation based on education. And now comes stanza three, verse four. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Here we are back again at exaltation. Thanksgiving, praise, blessing, thanks. Notice the difference. This is interesting. 
In stanza one, the form of the exaltation is joy, gladness, and singing. In stanza three, the form of the exaltation is thanksgiving, praise, and blessing. Fill up your worship vocabulary with these words. They're not throwaway words. Joy, gladness, singing, thanks, praise, blessing. So that when Chuck pauses at one of those musical moments and says, just express your heart to the Lord. you got words to do it. I bless you. I thank you. I honor you. I praise you. I rejoice in you. I'll be glad in you. Or if you don't particularly feel that way, say it this way. I pray you help me thank you. Help me love you. Help me honor you. Help me trust you. Help me delight in you. Help me be glad in you. And you've got words to use to get your heart up and out to God. That's why the Bible is the Bible. So there it is. Exaltation, stanza three. Now, last stanza. Stanza four, verse five. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. This is education again, isn't it? You need to know three things if you're going to thank him, bless him, praise him. What three things? One, he's good. Two, he loves you. Three, he keeps his promise. He's faithful. And it lasts forever. And the most important word there for building a philosophy of education is the word for at the beginning of the verse. For the Lord is good. That little word for, a whole philosophy of education hangs on that verse. A whole vision of how God glorifies himself in the world and in the church. A whole reason for putting up a a building and trying to do it debt free. A whole vision of life is in the word for. And I, I thought if I said that, somebody might object. One word, you're going to build a whole philosophy of education on one word. That You make too much hang on one word. And as soon as I objected like that to myself, I was taken back about 34 years to uh, Wheaton, Illinois, and the North Side Park, part of which is called the Lagoon. And uh, Noel had on a army jacket, and I had on a sweatshirt and jeans, and we were sitting or kneeling under a big oak tree, and I read two poems, and then I reached into my pocket and pulled out a diamond ring, and I said, would you marry me? Now, you tell me that one word is not important. Just one word could either be no, or it could be yes. And you build a life on the one or the other. Words are important. Single words are important. And this little word for here is important because it says, 
Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name because he's good. Because his love lasts a long, long time for you. Because his faithfulness and his promise keeping never ends. And if you don't see the little connection between that and thanks and blessing and praise, you either won't thank and bless and praise, or your thanksgiving and blessing and praising will be rootless. And we'll give him no honor. This little word that connects, bless him, praise him, honor him, love him, thank him, adore him, delight in him, because, and then you put education under it, you put theology under it, you put doctrine under it. He's good. He loves. He's faithful. It's really important. So let's step back now and see this psalm whole. Exultation. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Based on education, know that the Lord himself is God. It is he that made us. Not we ourselves, we're his people, the sheep of his pasture. Back to exaltation. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Now again, based on education, for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. And his faithfulness to all generations. So, know something. And let that knowing you're made You're owned. You're shepherded. He's good. He's loving. He's faithful. Let that give rise to exaltation. What must you know in order to sing, in order to thank, in order to rejoice, in order to be glad in God? What must you know? About him. We need to know things in verse 3, things in verse 5. Let me try to lay a more detailed foundation from verse 3. There are three things we need to know in verse 3. Remember it says, singing, know. Know something. And here are the three things. Know that the Lord is God. Know that he made us. We didn't make ourselves. And therefore, know, thirdly, we're his people and the sheep of his pasture. Let's just take those three things one at a time. Make sure we understand them. And ask the Lord as we're focusing on them to open the eyes of your heart to see them and their worth. They are of infinite value. And and what we need to pray most about, I think, in our Christian lives is that our hearts be quickened to correspond with what we know with our heads. And the psalmist is doing that all the time. He's always praying things like, incline my heart to your testimonies and open my eyes that I may see wonderful things out of your word and unite my heart to fear your name and satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. The psalmist is always giving evidence that he's not where he should be. And therefore crying to God that hearts would be awakened. You can say things with your mouth and think things in your brain very easily, but to feel them in your heart is not in your control. 
It's a gift. It's a work of the Spirit. And we need to be desperately crying to God that we would correspond in our hearts with what we know in our heads. And so let's ask the Lord as we open these three things that he would do that. Here's the first one. The Lord is God. Know that the Lord is God. Now, when you see all capitals, L-O-R-D, in the Old Testament, you need to know something. Namely, this is an English rendering of the Hebrew Yahweh, sometimes called Jehovah. Not everybody realizes that in the Old Testament, God, Elohim, generic G-O-D, or by any other name, God, Dios, Allah, God generic has a name, like James. Only it's not James, it's Yahweh. He's got a name. Tell them that I am sent you. And that phrase, I am, is the verb, Hayah, in the Hebrew, on which Yahweh is built. So that the name of God is like Jim or James or John, only it's Yahweh. So this is not double talk here. This is not saying A is A when it says the Lord is God. This is like saying James is God. Only it's not James, it's Yahweh is God. Yahweh is absolute. Yahweh is creator. There is one God and there are not many gods. There is one. His name is Yahweh. Now, the Hebrews were very hesitant to pronounce the word Yahweh. They usually put in its place the Hebrew Adonai, which means Lord. And the vowels of Adonai combined with the consonants of Yahweh produced Jehovah. That's where that word came from. Today, following the Greek Old Testament and the Jewish tradition, we do not translate Yahweh as any kind of transliterated form. Nobody makes an effort to do it. We may not even pronounce it anywhere near correctly in saying Yahweh. All we know is the consonants. And what the Greek Old Testament did in translating the Hebrew was translate it with kurios. Kurios is taken right over into the New Testament and it means Lord. And so it comes over into our English as Lord, but they capitalize it to let you know every time Lord means Adonai, little letters, or Baal, little letters, but when it is Yahweh, it is big letters, and you need to know it's a personal name. Like James, only it's Yahweh. The one who is, the being one, the absolute one, the one who always was. And so when he says, know that Yahweh is God, he's saying, Israel, know your God, the God who brought you out of the out of Egypt, who formed a covenant relationship with you, who gave you the law, who has sent you prophets and judges, who has made you his own, who promises you a Messiah. That Lord is not a tribal deity. He is the God who made the heavens and the earth. That's what's being asserted here. We don't have a Bethlehem God. Baptists don't have a Baptist God. Presbyterians don't have a Presbyterian God. There is one God, and either you have the God and Father of Jesus Christ, or you don't have God. Jesus said that in a most flabbergasting way to the Jews in his day. He said, if God were your father, you would worship me. You're of your father, the devil. Jesus is the touchstone. 
Here's the second thing it says. He made us. He made us. You didn't make yourself. You're not the product of your parents merely. You're not the product of evolution. You are the product of God. Every one of you, just look at you. Look at you. And there are about six and a half billion of you. I'm always amazed when I go to airports. I just look at all these people. And you, they're none of them identical. Not a one. Even identical twins. I knew a pair of identical twins, Joel and Carol. And I could tell them apart. I knew them, but nobody else could tell them apart except their parents. But I knew them really well. They weren't identical. They looked at kind of. Nobody's identical. And God made every one of you. God made you. You are a made thing. Just like this pulpit is a made thing. So the preacher and the pulpit are made things. This is wood. This is flesh. This is also soul and person. And only God can make that. Genes don't make persons. God makes persons. You are a made thing. Now, you might say, why does that yield joy, singing, and gladness? Maybe I don't like being a made thing. And there are millions of people who don't like being made things. I'm my own. Nobody will treat me as an owned, made thing. I will call my own shots and be my own master. Why is it good news to be a made thing? Because the inference that the psalmist draws out of it is not that we are vulnerable, but that we are cared for. You see that in the third point there in verse we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So first, the Lord is God. Second, we are made and we didn't make ourselves. And therefore, third, we're not our own. We're his. And when you think his, think sheep in a pasture. That is, you have a shepherd who leads you to green grass and still waters and guards you from wolves and leads you through valleys of the shadow of death and takes care of you. That's the inference drawn from being owned by God. And now, when I read that, my mind went to the cross because when I hear the words, you're not your own, John Piper. God made you. He owns you. I think of a verse, namely, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, where it says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your bodies. So Christians on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, where he died for us so that our sins would be forgiven. Christians on this side of the cross, we know that we are doubly owned. We are owned because he made us and we're owned because he bought us with his blood. And we couldn't belong to God if he didn't because in our being made we have rebelled against him. We have sinned. 
And if we're going to belong to God as good news, we've got to be bought as well as made. You know, you might have thought, sheep. I don't know if that's good news to be a sheep. They shear sheep and they kill sheep to eat. People eat lamb and mutton. So I'm not sure this is good news to be called a sheep. And it wouldn't be necessarily unless the shepherd chose to die instead of the sheep. That's Jesus Christ. We couldn't live as sheep and, and expect anything but slaughter in the end if the shepherd had not said, I will put myself between the wolf of death and the wolf of judgment, and the wolf of wrath coming from a holy God, and I will suffer, and I will die, and absorb it, and I will rise triumphant over it, and then I will gather my sheep into my fold, and they will be safe, because I have defeated death, I've defeated hell, I've defeated Satan by absorbing it. So, from this side of the cross, when I read these words, you are not your own. You belong to God. He's your shepherd. I hear only gospel good news. And I hope you do too. Therefore, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. That's the connection between verse 3 and verse 2. What else do we need to know in order to sing and Serve with gladness and thank and bless and praise. Well, we need to know the three things that are in verse 5, right? One, the Lord is good. Two, His loving kindness is everlasting. Three, His faithfulness endures to all generations. And isn't it interesting? This, this means a great deal to me as a father, and I'll show you why. Isn't it interesting that in verse 3, the education we get has to do with the authority and the power of God. He is God. He is the creator. He owns us. And I hear that kind of voice. And then in verse 5, he tells us why all this authority and all this power and all this ownership is such good news. Namely, he's good. He's loving. He's faithful. And it lasts forever. And that's the kind of voice I hear there. And I'm sure you're like this. I hope, I think it's a right way to be. I hope I'm not just drawing this inference from my own private experience since I see it all over the Bible. But I am so helped as a person and as a father that both those kinds of statements about God are in the Bible. I am God. I made you. You are mine. Don't trifle with me and don't go after other masters. So I say it loud. I say it forcefully. And I'm glad that there are. I'm good. I love you. I keep my promises. It never ends. And I hear that kind of voice because I'm a father. I have four sons and I have a daughter and they need to hear, don't you ever talk to your mother like that again. 
And I love you. I'm devoted to you. I will be there for you no matter what. They need both. Because they need to know God. They need verse 3 and they need verse 5. We need to know these things. Look at these three in verse 5. He's good. He's loving. And he's faithful. Faithful, true. Like an arrow is true. Keeps its course. You shoot it at a target, it gets to the target. It ke- he keeps his promises. He's aligned with the truth. And he's loving. And let me just take you to the cross again. To You know, the great thing about being Christians is that we can read the Old Testament and exalt in it and say, this is sweet, this is good, I love this. And then we can also go to the New Testament where Christ has come, the Son of God has come, He's died for us, He's risen, He's triumphant, He's reigning, He's going to come again. And the cross puts an exclamation point at the end of all these good things and it underlines them. And here's the best, it It's like God taking his covenant promises that we can enjoy from the Old Testament and signing them in the blood of his son. So if we have some assurance in the Old Testament, this is true, this is good, this is God. All we can have is double assurance in the New Testament when Jesus comes and says, I am the yes to all of God's promises. And God takes the blood of his own son and says, this is the blood of the covenant. If I have made a covenant with you and you enjoy my promises in the Old Testament, know that this is why I keep them. My son paid for you and bought you. So when you hear love in the Old Testament, and it's all over the Old Testament. Testament, of course, as well as wrath and judgment. But love is there and it's right here. His steadfast love, that's my translation, endures forever. Let your mind go to the New Testament. Say to Romans 5, 6, where it says, even while we were yet helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, scarcely for a righteous man will one die, but perchance for a good man, one might even dare to die. But God, in other words, very different from human love, but God shows his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the the point of the cross is to take people who have been enjoying verse 5 of Psalm 100 and then start to tremble when it says the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever and says, yeah, but I'm a sinner and I fail and I've just done so many bad things. He can't love me. And the cross comes in like power and says he loves the ungodly. He loves Failures. He loves sinners. That's what makes his love different, according to Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. And so let the cross finish Psalm 100 and just put a big exclamation point after it and underline it and sign it with God's signature in the blood of his son. So that when you read it, you feel not just, boy, that would be nice, but that is wonderful and bought for me. So we know these three things. He's good, he's loving, and he's faithful, and it lasts forever. So go and serve the Lord, not begrudgingly. Serve the Lord, not merely dutifully, but serve the Lord with gladness.
And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.